TED Audio Collective. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. This TED Dialogue series features Gretchen Carlson and David Brooks in conversation with head curator Chris Anderson and a special performance by Vi Higginson's Harlem Gospel Choir. Welcome to this next edition of TED Dialogues. Um, We're trying to do some bridging here today. You know, the American dream has inspired millions of people around the world for many years. Today, I think... You can say that America's divided, perhaps more than ever, and the divisions seem to be getting worse. It's actually, it's really hard even for people on different sides to have a conversation. People almost feel disgusted with each other. Some families can't even speak to each other right now. Our purpose in this dialogue today is to try to do something about that, to just to try and have a different kind of conversation, to do some listening, some thinking, some understanding. And I have um, two people with us to help us do that. They're, they're not going to come at this hammer and tong against each other. This is not like cable news. This is, this is two people who've both spent a lot of their working life In the political center, or right of the center, they've, they've immersed themselves in conservative worldviews, if you like. They know that space very well. And we're going to explore together how to think about what is happening right now and whether we can find new ways to, to bridge and just to have wiser, more connected conversations. Um, with me, first of all, uh, Gretchen Carlson, who has spent uh, like a decade working at Fox News, um, co-hosting Uh, sorry, hosting Fox and Friends, and then The Real Story, um, before taking a courageous stance in, in filing sexual harassment claims against Roger Ailes, which eventually led to his departure from Fox News. Um, David Brooks, he has earned the wrath of many of the paper's left-leaning readers because of his conservative views. Um, and more recently, perhaps, some of the right-leaning readers because of his criticism of some aspects of Trump. Um, Yet his columns are usually the top two or three, one, two or three most read 
content of the day because they're brilliant, because they bring psychology and social science to providing understanding for what's going on. So without further ado, a huge welcome to Gretchen and David. Come and join me. So, Gretchen, 63 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. Why did they do this? There are a lot of reasons in my mind why it happened. I mean, I think it was a movement of sorts, but it started long ago. It didn't just happen overnight. Anger would be the first word that I would think of. Anger with nothing being done in Washington. Um, anger about not being heard. I think there was a huge swath of the population that feels like Washington never listens to them. You know, a good part of the middle of America, not just the coasts. And he was somebody they felt was listening to their concerns. So I think those two issues would be the main reason. I have to throw in there also celebrity. I think that that had a huge, um, a huge impact on Donald Trump becoming president. But was, was the anger justified? Yeah, I think so. You know, I, uh, I spent, I wrote in 2015 and early 2016, I wrote about 30 columns with the following theme, don't worry, Donald Trump will never be the Republican nominee. <laughs> and having done that I, uh, and gotten that so wrong, I decided to spend the ensuing year just out in Trump world. And I found a lot of economic dislocation. I ran to a woman in West Virginia who was going to a funeral for her mom, and she said, the nice thing about being Catholic is we don't have to speak. And that's good because we're not word people. And that phrase rung in my head, word people. If you're a word person, a lot of us in the TED community are word people. But if you're not, the economy has not been angled toward you. And uh, so 11 million men, for example, are out of labor force because those jobs are gone away. A lot of social injury. A lot of used to be able to say, hey, I'm not the richest person in the world. I'm not the most famous, but my neighbors can count on me. And I get some dignity out of that. And because of celebritification or whatever, if you're not rich or famous, you feel invisible. And a lot of moral injury, sense of feeling betrayed. Uh, and frankly, in, in this country, we almost have one success story, which is you go to college, you get a white-collar job, and you're a success. And if you don't feel in that formula, you feel like you're not respected. And so that accumulation of things, and when I talk to Trump voters and still do, I found most of them completely realistic about his failings. But they said, this is my shot. Mm -hmm. And, you, you and yet I predicted that he would be the nominee, because I've known him for 27 years. He's a master marketer. And one of the things that he did extremely well that President Obama also did extremely well, which was simplifying the message. Simplifying down to phrases and to a populist message. Even if he can't achieve it, it sounded good. And many people latched on to that simplicity again. You know, it's something they could grasp onto. I get that, I want that. That sounds fantastic. And I remember when he used to come on my show originally, before The Apprentice was even The Apprentice, and he would say it was the number one show on television. And I would say live back to him, no, it's not. <laughs> and he would say, yes, it is, Gretchen. And I'd say, no, it's not. <laughs> but people at home would see that, and they'd be like, wow, I should be watching the number one show on television. And lo and behold, it became the number one show on television. So he had this, I've seen this ability in him to be the master marketer. It's puzzling to a lot of people on the left that so many women voted for him, you know, despite some of his comments. I wrote a column about this for Time Motto, saying that I really believe that a lot of people put on blinders. And maybe for the first time, 
Some people decided that policies that they believed in and being heard and not being invisible anymore was more important to them than the way in which he had acted or acts as a human. And so human dignity, whether it would be the dust-up about the disabled reporter or what happened in that audio tape with Billy Bush and the way in which he spoke about women, they put that aside and pretended as if they hadn't seen that or heard that because to them, policies were more important. Right. So it's not, it's not just because someone voted for Trump, it's not blind ad- adherence to everything that he said or, or stood for. No. I mean, I heard a lot of people that would say to me, wow, I just wish that he would shut up before the election. <laughs> you know, if he would just stay quiet, he'd get elected. And so maybe for people on the left, there's a trap there to sort of despise or, or just be baffled by the support, assuming that it's sort of for some of the unattractive features. Actually, maybe they're supporting him despite those because they see something exciting. They see a man of action. They see the, the sort of the, the choking hold of government being thrown off in, in some way, and they're excited by But that. But don't forget that we saw that on the left as well, Bernie Sanders. So this is one of the commonalities that I think we can talk about today, is that the year of the outsider, David, right? And even though Bernie Sanders has been in Congress for a long time, he was deemed an outsider this time. And so there was anger on the left as well, and and so many people were in favor of of Bernie Sanders. So I think that that's... I see it as as a commonality. People who like Trump, people who like Bernie Sanders, they were liking different policies, but the underpinning was anger. David, there's often this... this, um, narrative then, that the sole explanation for, um, you know, for Trump's victory and his rise is this, his tapping into, you know, anger in a very visceral way. Um, but you've written a bit about, about uh, some of, you know, that it's, it's actually more than that, that there's a worldview that is being worked on here. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I would say he understood what, frankly, I didn't, which was what debate we were having. And so I'd grown up starting with Reagan, you know, and it was the big government versus small government debate. It was Barry Goldwater versus George McGovern. And that was the debate we had been having for a generation. Uh, And it was Democrats wanted to use government to enhance equality. Republicans wanted to limit government to enhance freedom. That was the debate. He understood, which I think the two major parties did not, which was that's not the debate anymore. The debate is now open versus closed. On one side are those who have the tailwinds of globalization and the meritocracy blowing at their back, and they tend to favor open trade, open borders, open social mores, because there's so many opportunities. On the other side are those who feel the headwinds of globalization and the meritocracy are just blasting in their faces, and they favor closed trade, closed borders, closed social mores, because they just want some security. And so he was right on that fundamental issue, and people were willing to overlook a lot to get there. And so he felt that sense of security. We're speaking the morning after a Trump's joint session speech. There are three traditional groups in the Republican Party. There were the foreign policy hawks who believed was America's global policeman. Trump totally repudiated that view. Second, there was the social conservatives who believed in religious liberty, uh, pro-life, um, prayer in schools. Uh, he totally ignored that. There was not a single mention of a single social conservative issue. And then there were the fiscal hawks, the people who wanted to cut down on the national debt, Tea Party, cut the size of government. He's expanding the size of government. Here's a man who has single-handedly revolutionized in a major American party because he understood where the debate was headed before other people. And then guys like Steve Bannon come in and give him substance to his impulses. 
And so take, take that a bit further and, and maybe expand a bit more on, on um, your insights into Steve Bannon's worldview. Because he's sometimes as tarred in very simple terms as this sort of dangerous, sort of racist, xenophobic, um, you know, anger-sparking person. Um, there's, there's more to the story. That is yeah. perhaps an unfair simplification. Yeah, I think that, that part is true, but there's another part that's probably true too. And so, you know, he's part of a national, a global movement. It's like being around Marxists in 1917. There's him here, there's the UKIP party, there's the National Front in France, there's Putin, there's a Turkish version, a Philippine version. So we have to recognize this is a global intellectual movement. And it believes that wisdom and virtue is not held in individual conversation and civility the way a lot of us in the Enlightenment side of the world do. It's held in the, in the German word as the Volk, in the people, in the common instinctive wisdom of the plain people. And the essential virtue of that people is always being threatened by outsiders. And he's got a strategy for how to get there. He's got a series of policies to you bring the people up and repudiate the outsiders, whether those outsiders are Islam, Mexicans, the media, the coastal elites. Uh, and there's a whole worldview there. It's a very coherent worldview. I sort of have more respect for him. I, I loathe what he stands for, and I think he's wrong on the substance. But it's interesting to see someone with a set of ideas find a vehicle, Donald Trump, and then try to take control of, a, of the White House in order to advance his viewpoint. So it's almost become like the, the core question of our time now is, is, can you be patriotic but also have a global mindset? Are, are these two things implacably opposed to each other? I mean, a, a lot of conservatives um, and to the extent that it's a different category, a lot of Trump supporters are infuriated by the coastal elites and, and the globalists because they, they see them as, as sort of not, not cheering for America, not really being, embracing fully American values. I mean, have you seen that in your, in your conversations with people and your understanding of their mindset? I do think that there's a huge difference between, I, I hate to put people in categories, but middle America versus people who live on the coast. I mean, it's, a, it's an entirely different existence. And I grew up in Minnesota, so I have an understanding of middle America, and I've never forgotten it. And maybe that's why I have an understanding of what happened here. Because those people often feel like nobody's listening to them, and that we're only concentrating on California and New York, right? And so I think that was a huge reason why Trump was elected. I mean, it just, these people felt like they were, they were being heard. Whether or not patriotic or patriotism falls into that, I, you know, I'm not sure about that. I do know one thing. A lot of things that Trump talked about last night are not conservative things. Had Hillary Clinton gotten up and given that speech, not one Republican would have stood up to applaud. I mean, he's talking about spending a trillion dollars on infrastructure. That is not a conservative viewpoint. He talked about government-mandated maternity leave. A lot of women may love that. It's not a conservative viewpoint. So it's fascinating that people who loved what his message was during the campaign, I'm not sure how, how do you think they'll react to that? Yeah, I, sh I should say I grew up in Lower Manhattan in the triangle between ABC Carpets, the Strand Bookstore, and the Odeon <laughs> Restaurant. So, uh, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm in touch sometimes. <laughs> Uh, you are a card-carrying member of the Global Elite, my man. But, you know. uh, <laughs> but what did you make of the, of the speech last night? I mean, it seemed to be a move to a more 
uh, moderate position on the face of it. Yeah, and I thought it was his best speech, and it, it took away the freakishness of him. I mean, <laughs> I, I do think he's a moral freak, and I think he'll be undone by that fact. And the fact that he just doesn't know anything about anything and is uncurious about it. So I, but if you, if you take away these minor flaws, uh, I think we got to see him at his best, and it was real revealing for me to see him at his best. Because it, to me, it exposed a central contradiction that he's got to confront. That a lot of what he's doing is he's offering security. And so I'm ordering closed borders. I'm going to secure the world for you, for my people. But then if you actually look at a lot of his economic policies, like healthcare reform, which is about private healthcare accounts, that's not security, that's risk. Educational vouchers, that's risk. Deregulation, that's risk. There's really a contradiction between the security of the mindset and a lot of the policies which are very risk-oriented. And what I would say, especially having spent this year, um, the people in the rural Minnesota, in New Mexico, they got enough risk in their lives. And so they, they're going to say, I don't, I'm no thank you, no thank you. And I think his health care repeal will fail for that reason. But, but despite the criticisms um, you just made of him, it does at least seem that... Um, He's, he's listening to a surprisingly wide range of voices. I mean, it's not like everyone is coming from the same place. And maybe that leads to a certain amount of chaos and confusion. But um, I actually it's, don't it's think he's listening to a wide range of voices. I think he's listening to very few people. That, that's just my impression of it. I mean, I, I, I believe that some of the things he said last night had Ivanka all over them. So he, I believe he was listening to her before that speech. And I, you know, he was teleprompter Trump last night as opposed to Twitter Trump. And right. you know, that's why before we came out here, I said, we better check Twitter <laughs> <laughs> to see if anything's changed. Because, and also, I think you have to keep in mind that because he's such a unique character, what was the bar that we were expecting last night? You know, was it here or here or here? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so he comes out and gives a, a looking political speech, and everyone goes, wow, he can do it. You know? yeah. It just depends but, on which direction he goes. Yeah, I know, and we're trying to build bridges here, and especially for an audience that may have contempt for Trump. I, it's important to say, no, this is a real thing. But as I try to do my best to go an hour showing respect for him, my thyroid is, is surging because I, I think the, the, the oddities of his character really are condemnatory and are going to doom him. But this is, I mean, your reputation is as a conser conservative, right? You're, you, like... People would describe you as right of center, and yet here you are with this, you know, sort of visceral reaction against against him and, and some of what he stands for. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, how do you how do you have a conversation? Like the people who support him on on evidence so far are probably pretty excited. He's 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 done a lot of what he's, he's certainly um, um, shown real engagement in a lot of what he promised to do. And there is a strong desire to change the system radically. Like people hate what government has become and how it's left them out. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. And I, but I think that when he's proposing a huge government program last night that we used to call the bad S word stimulus, I mean, I find it completely ironic to spend a trillion dollars on something. That is not a conservative viewpoint. But then again, I don't really believe he's a Republican. Yeah. And I, <laughs> so, I would say, as someone who identifies as conservative, first of all, to be conservative is to believe in the limitations of politics. Samuel Johnson said, of all the things that human hearts endure, how few are those that kings can cause and cure? Meaning politics is a limited realm. What matters most is the moral nature of the society. And so I have to think character comes first, and a man who doesn't pass the character threshold cannot be a good president. Second, I'm the kind of conservative who I hearken back to Alexander Hamilton. 
who was a Latino hip-hop star from the Heights. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> but he, he, his definition of America was very future-oriented. He was a poor boy from the islands who had this rapid and amazing rise to success. And he wanted government to give poor boys and girls like him a chance to succeed, using limited but energetic government to create social mobility. For him and for Lincoln and for Teddy Roosevelt, the idea of America was the idea of the future. We may have division and racism and slavery in our past, but we have a common future. The definition of America that Steve Bannon stands for is backwards-looking. It's nostalgic. It's for the past. And that is not traditionally the American identity. That's traditionally, frankly, the Russian identity. That's how they had def defined virtue. And so I think it is a fundamental and foundational betrayal of what conservatism used to stand for. Well, I'd actually like to hear from you. And if we see some comments coming in from some of you, we'll, we'll try... Oh, well, here's one right now. Jeffrey Allen Carnegie, I've tried to convince progressive friends that they need to understand what motivates Trump supporters. Yet many of them have given up trying to understand in the face of what they perceive as lies, selfishness and hatred. How would you reach out to such people the Tea Party of the left, to try to bridge this divide? I actually think that there are commonalities in anger, as I expressed earlier. So I think that you can come to the table both being passionate about something. So at least you care. And, you know, I would like to believe, I mean, the C words also become a horrible word, compromise, right? So you have the far left and the far right, and compromise, forget it. Those groups don't want to even think about it. But you have a huge swath of voters, myself included, who are registered independents, like 40 percent of us, right? So there is a huge faction of America that wants to see change and wants to see people come together. It's just that we have to figure out how, how to do that. So, so let's, let's talk about that for a minute, because you know, we're having these TED dialogues, we're trying to bridge. Um, there's a lot of people out there right now, perhaps especially on the left, who think this is a terrible idea, that actually the only moral response to the great tyranny that may be about to emerge in America is to resist it at every stage. It's to fight it tooth and nail. We, we, it's a mistake to try and, try and do this. Just fight. Is, that, is, that, is there a case for that? It depends what fight means. If it means literal fighting, then no. <laughs> if it means marching, well, maybe marching to rage consciousness, that seems fine. But if you want change in this country, we do it through parties and politics. We organize parties, and those parties are big, diverse, messy coalitions, and we engage in politics. And politics is always morally unsatisfying, because it's always a bunch of compromises. But politics is essentially a competition between partial truths. The Trump people have a piece of the truth of America. I think Trump himself is the wrong answer to the right question, but that they have some truth. Uh, and it's truth found in the epidemic of opiates around the country. It's truth found in the, just the spread of loneliness. It's the truth found in people whose lives are inverted. They peaked professionally at age 30, and it's all been downhill since. And so understanding that doesn't take fighting, it takes conversation, and then asking, what are we going to replace Trump with? But you saw fighting last night, too, even at the speech, because you saw the Democratic women who, who came and wore white to honor the suffragette movement. You know, and I remember back during the campaign where some Trump supporters wanted to actually get rid of the amendment that allowed us to vote as women. It was like, what? <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know if that's the right way to fight. It was interesting because I was looking in the audience trying to see Democratic women who didn't wear white, you know. So there's a lot going on there, and, and there's a lot of uh, ways to fight that are um, not necessarily, you know, doing that. 
I mean, one of the key questions to me is, is the people who voted for Trump, but if you like, are, are more in the center, like they're, they're possibly amenable to persuasion, are they more likely to be persuaded by seeing a passionate uh, uprising of people saying, no, 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 you, ca you can't, or by, well, that actually piss them off and push how, them away. How is any of us persuaded? Is it, am I going to persuade you? I say, well, you're kind of a bigot, you're supporting bigotry, uh, you're kind of, you're supporting sexism, uh, you're a primitive fascistic rise from our, some authoritarian paths. That's probably not going to be too persuasive to you. Uh, uh, and so the way any of us are persuaded by, A, some basic show of respect for the point of view and saying, uh, you know, I think this guy is not going to get you where you need to go. And what, you know, there are two phrases you heard over and over again wherever you go in the country. One, the phrase, fly over country. And that's often, that's been heard for years, but I would say this year I heard it almost on an hourly basis, a sense of feeling invisible. And then the second, a sense of the phrase, political correctness. Just that rebellion, they can't even, they're not even letting us say what we think. And, you know, I teach at Yale, the narrowing, um, the narrowing of debate is real. So you would say this is a trap that liberals have fallen into by, by celebrating causes that they really believe in, often expressed you know, through the language of, quote, political correctness. They have um, done damage. To, they've pushed people away. I would say a lot of the argument, though, with the scent of fascism, authoritarianism, that just feels over the top to people. And listen, I've written 8 million anti-Trump columns, but it is a problem, especially for the coastal media, that every time he does something slightly wrong, we go to 11. Right. And we're at 11 every day. And it just strains credibility at some point. We're, we're crying wolf a little too loud and a little too early. But there may be a time when we really do have to cry wolf. But see, I think this is why... One of the most important things to me is how the conservative media handles Trump. Because will they call him out when things are not true? Or will they just go along with it? To me, that is what is essential in this entire discussion. Because when you have followers of somebody who don't really care if he tells the truth or not, that can be very dangerous. So to me, it's how is the conservative media going to respond to it? I mean, you've been calling yeah. him out, right? Yeah. But how will... How will other forms of conservative media deal with that as we move it's forward? It's all shifted, though. So the conservative media used to be Fox or Charles Krauthammer or George Will. They're no longer the conservative media. Now there's another whole institution, set of institutions further right, which is Breitbart and Infowars, uh, Alex Jones, uh, Laura Ingram. And so they're the ones who are now his base, not, not even so much Fox. My last question for the time being is just on this question of the truth. I mean, it's one of the scariest things to people right now that there is no agreement nationally on, on what is true. There's, there's no, I've never seen anything like it where, where facts are so massively disputed. Your whole newspaper, sir, is delivering fake news every day. And, um, <laughs> and failing. And, 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 and failing. <laughs> um, my commiserations. But, but, but it's... it's, it's um, how... Is there any path whereby we can start to get some kind of consensus on how, you know, to believe the same things? Like, can, can online communities play a role here? How, how do we fix this? See, I understand how that happened. That's another groundswell kind of emotion that was going on in the middle of America and not being heard in thinking that the mainstream media was biased. It's, there's a difference, though, between being biased and being fake. 
To me, that is a very important distinction in this conversation. So let's just say that there was some bias in the mainstream media. Okay, so there are ways to try and mend that. But what what Trump's doing is nuclearizing that, you know, and saying, "Look, we're just going to call all of that fake." That's where it gets dangerous. Do you think enough of his supporters have um, a greater loyalty to the truth than to any like like the, the principle of um, not supporting something that is demonstrably not true? actually matters so that there'll be a correction at some point. I think the truth eventually comes out. And so, for example, Donald Trump has based a lot of his economic policy on the supposition that Americans have lost manufacturing jobs because they've been stolen by the Chinese. That is maybe 13% of the jobs have left. The truth is that 87% of the jobs were replaced by technology. That is just the truth. Uh, And so as a result, when he says, I'm going to close TPP and all the jobs will come roaring back, they will not come roaring back. So that is an actual f- fact, in my belief. And, and <laughs> but, but I'm saying what his, what his supporters think is the truth, no matter how many times you might say that, they still believe him. But, but the reality, eventually either jobs will come back or they will not come back. Right. And, and that at that point, either something will work, it doesn't work, and it doesn't work or not work because of great marketing, it works because it actually addresses a real problem. And so I happen to think the truth will out. If you've if you got a question, please um, raise your hand here. Hi, I'll speak into the box. Um, <laughs> my name, is that good? My name's Yael Eisenstadt. I, I hear a lot of this talk about how we all need to start talking to each other more and understanding each other more. And I mean, I've even written about this, published on this subject as well. But now today, I'm, I keep hearing the, you know, liberals, yes, I live in New York, I can be considered a liberal. We sit here and self-analyze, what did we do to not understand the Rust Belt? Or what, have, what can we do to understand Middle America better? And what I'd like to know, have you seen any attempts or conversations from Middle America of what can I do to understand the so-called coastal elites better? Because I'm just offended as being put in a box as a coastal elite as someone in Middle America is as being considered a flyover state and not listened to. There you go. I can hear Facebook cheering as you Okay. Ask. What, what, what do yeah, you say well, I that? would say, um, and this is someone who's been conservative all my adult life, when you grow up conservative, you learn to speak both languages. Because if I'm going to listen to music, I'm not going to listen to Ted Nugent. So I've, I've got a, a lot of my favorite rock bands are all on the left. If I'm going to go to a school, I'm going to go probably to a school where the culture is liberal. If I'm going to watch a sitcom or, or late-night comedy show, it's going to be liberal. If I'm going to read a good newspaper, it's going to be the New York Times. And so as a result, you learn to speak both languages. Now, and so that, that actually, at least for a number of years, when I started at National Review with William F. Buckley, it made us sharper, because we were used to arguing against people every day. The problem that now has happened is you have ghettoization on the right, and you can live entirely in right world. And so as a result, the quality of argument on the right has diminished, because you're not in the sort of the other side all the time. Uh, but I do think if you're living in Minnesota or Iowa uh, or Arizona, the coastal elites make themselves aware to you, so you know that language as well. But it's not the reverse. But, but what, what, do, what does middle America not get about coastal elites? Like why, so, so, so the critique is you are not dealing with the real problems. There's sort of a feeling of, a, of almost like a snobbishness of an, of an elitism that is, that is very off-putting. What, what are they missing? Like if, they, if you could... If you could plant one piece of truth from the mindset of, of, of someone in this room, for example, 
Um, what, what, would you, what would you say to them? Just how insanely wonderful we are. Uh, no, um, no I, th- th- I reject the category. The problem with populism is the same problem with elitism. It's just a, a prejudice on the basis of a, probably an overgeneralized social class distinction, which is too simplistic to apply in reality. The, uh, those of us in New York know that there are some people in New York who are completely awesome, and some people who are pathetic. And if you live in Iowa, some people are awesome and some people are pathetic. It's not a question of what degree you have or where you happen to live in the country. The distinction is just a crude simplification to arouse political power. But I would encourage people to watch a television news show or read a column that they normally wouldn't. So if you are a Trump supporter, you know, watch the other side for a day because you need to come out of the bubble if you're ever going to have a conversation and both sides. So and if you're a, a, a liberal, then watch, you know, something that's very conservative. Read a column that is not something you would normally read because then you gain perspective of what the other side is thinking. And, and to me, that's a start of coming together. I worry about the same thing you worry about, this, these bubbles. I think if you only watch certain entities, you have no idea what the rest of the world is talking about. Yeah, I, I, just, I think not only watching, being part of an organization that meets at least once a month that puts you in direct contact with people completely unlike yourself is something we all have a responsibility for. I, th- I may get this a little wrong, but I think of the top-selling automotive models in this country, I think the top three or four are all pickup trucks. So ask yourself, how many people do I know who own a pickup truck? And it could be very few or zero for a lot of people. And so that's sort of a, just a warning sign, kind of a problem. Where, where can I join a club where I'll, I'll have a lot in common with a person who drives a pickup truck because we have a common interest in whatever? Uh, and, and so the internet's definitely um, contributing to this. The question here from Chris um, Arjimian. How do you feel the structure of communications, especially prevalence of on social media and individualized content, can be used to bring together a political divide instead of just funneling communities into echo chambers? I mean, is there... Is there it looks like Facebook and Google, since the election, are working hard on this question. They're, they're trying to change the algorithm so that they, they don't, certainly so that they don't amplify fake news to the extent that happened last time around. Do you see any other promising signs of... Or amplify one side of the equation. Exactly. I mean, I think that was the constant argument from the, uh, to the, from the right, was that social media and the internet in general was putting articles towards the top that were not their worldview. I mean, I think, again, that, that just, it fed into the anger. It fed into the anger of, you know, you're pushing something that's not what I believe. But social media has obviously changed everything. And I think Trump is the example of, of you know, Twitter changing absolutely everything. And for, from his point of view, he's reaching the American people without a filter, which he believes the media is, right? Question from the audience. Hi, um, I'm Destiny. Um, I have a question regarding political correctness, and I'm curious, like, when did political correctness become, like, synonymous with silencing versus, like, something that we, a way that we speak about other people to show them respect and preserve their dignity? Well, I think the conservative media really pounded this issue for the last 10 years. You know, I, I think that they really, really spent a lot of time talking about political correctness and how people should have the ability to say what they think, right? Another reason why Trump became so popular because he says what he thinks. Um, I, it also makes me think about the fact that I do believe there are a lot of people in America who 
agree with Steve Bannon, but they would never say it publicly. And so voting for Trump gave them the opportunity to agree with it silently. I mean, say, look, on the issue of immigration, uh, it's a legitimate point of view that we have too many immigrants in the country, that we're, it's economically costing us. We have us too many immigrants in the immigrants. country, especially from Britain. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like the British accent, okay? I, I apologize. America, I'm sorry. But, I, I'll go now. <laughs> but uh, it became um, sort of per, um, impermissible to say that because it was a sign that somehow you must be a bigot of some sort. And so it was, the political correctness was not only uh, cracking down on speech that we would all find completely offensive, it was cracking on some speech that was legitimate, and then it was turning speech and thought into action and treating it as a crime. And people getting fired and people thrown out of schools, and there were speech codes written, now there are these diversity teams where if you say something that somebody finds offensive, like, uh, you know, smoking is really dangerous, you can say you're insulting my group, and a team from the administration will come down into your dorm room <laughs> and put thought police upon you. And so there has been a genuine narrowing of what can, is permissible to say. And some of it is legitimate. We, there are certain words I think, you know, there should be some uh, social sanction against, but some of it was used to enforce political agenda. So is that a project that you would urge on, on liberals, if you like, progressives, to rethink the ground rules around political correctness and try, try and almost be more correct, accept a little more um, uncomfortable language in certain circumstances and try and, try and, like, can you see that being solved to an extent that you know, that uh, others won't, won't be so offended and well, upset I mean, by it. Most American universities, especially elite universities, are overwhelmingly on the left. And there's just an ease of temptation to use your overwhelming cultural power to try to enforce some sort of thought that you think is right and correct thought. So be a little more self-suspicious of are we doing that. And second, and that my university, University of Chicago, sent out this letter as we will have no safe spaces. There'll be no critique of microaggression. If you get your healings hurt, well, welcome to the world of education. I do think that policy, which is being embraced by a lot of people on the left, by the way, uh, is just a corrective to what's happened. So here's a question from Karen Holloway. How, how do we foster an American culture that's forward-looking, like Hamilton, that expects and deals with change, rather than wanting to have everything go back to some fictional past? That's an easy question, well, right? Well, I'm still a believer in the American dream. You know, uh, and I think what we can teach our children is the basics, which is that hard work and, you know, believing in yourself. In America, you can achieve whatever you want. I mean, I was told that every single day. When I got into the real world, I was like, wow, that's maybe not always so true. <laughs> but I still believe in that. Maybe I'm being too optimistic. So I, I still look towards the future for that to continue. Yeah, I, I think you're being too optimistic. You, <laughs> you know, the odds of an American young person exceeding their parents' salary a generation ago, like 86% did it, now 51% do it. There's just been a problem in social mobility in the country. You've and written that this entire cent this century um, has basically been a disaster, that, that the age of sort of sunny growth is, is over, and uh, we're, we're in deep trouble. Yeah, I mean, we had, we averaged... In, in real terms, population adjusted two or three percent growth for 50 years, and now we've had less than one percent growth. And so there's something seeping out. And so if I'm going to tell people that they've got to, they should take risk, 
One of the things we're seeing is a rapid decline in mobility, the number of people who are moving across state lines.、Uh, and that's especially true among millennials. It's young people who are moving less. So, how do we give people the security from which they can take risk? And I'm a big believer in attachment theory of raising children. And the attachment theory is based on the motto that、uh, all of life is a series of daring adventures from a secure base. Have your parents given you a secure base? And as a society, we do not have a secure base. And we won't get to that Hamilton risk taking, energetic ethos until we can su- supply a secure base. So, so I wonder whether. There's, there's ground here to, to create almost like a shared agenda, like a, a, a bridging conversation.、Um, on the one hand, recognizing that, that there is this really deep problem that, that the, the, the system, the economic system that we've built, seems to be misfiring right now.、Um, second, that maybe it's, if you're right, that it's not all about、uh, immigrants, it's probably more about technology. That, if you could win that argument, That de emphasizes what is this, seems to me the single most divisive territory between Trump supporters and others, which is around the role of the other. It's very offensive to people on the left to have the other demonized to the extent that the other seems to be demonized. That, that feels deep, sort of deeply immoral. And、uh, maybe people on the left could agree, as you said, that、um, immigration may have happened too fast and that there, there is a, a, a limit beyond which human societies struggle. But nonetheless, This, prob- this whole problem becomes de emphasized if, if a- automation is the key issue. And then we try and work together on recognizing that it's real, recognizing that the problem probably wasn't properly addressed or seen or heard, and try to figure out how to rebuild communities using, well, using what? That, becomes, that seems to me to become the fertile conversation of the future is how do we rebuild communities in this modern age with technology doing what it's doing? And, and reimagine this brighter future. Yeah, But、I、that's think- why I go back to optimism. I mean, I'm not being, I'm not, it's not like I'm looking at, not looking at the facts of where we've come or what we've come from. But for gosh sakes, if we don't look at it from an optimistic point of view, I mean, I'm refusing to do that just yet.、Yeah. I mean, I'm not raising my 12 and 13 year old to say, look, the world is dim. We're going to have one more question from the room here. Hi. Hello. Oh, sorry.、Uh, You both mentioned、uh, the infrastructure plan and, and Russia and some other things that wouldn't be traditional Republican、uh, priorities. What do you think or, or when will、uh, Republicans be, be motivated to take a stand、uh, against Trumpism? After last night, not for a while. <laughs> Yeah, his, um, It changed a lot last night, I believe. His popularity among Republicans is he's got 85% approval, which is higher than Reagan had at this time. And that's because society has just gotten more polarized.、Um, so people follow the party much more than they used to. And so if you're waiting for Paul Ryan and Republicans in Congress to flake away, it's going to take a little while. Mm-hmm. Mm. But also because they're all concerned about re election. And Trump has so much power with getting people either for you or against you. And so they're vacillating every day, probably. Well, should I go against or should I not? But last night, where he finally sounded presidential, I think most Republicans are breathing a sigh of relief today. Yeah, but the half life of that is. Well,、short. right. I was just going to say <laughs> until Twitter happens again.、Yeah. Okay. I want to give each of you the chance to imagine you're speaking to, I don't know, the people online who are watching this, who may be Trump supporters, may be. Um, on the left, somewhere in the middle. W- how would you advise them to 
to bridge or to 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 relate to other people. Can you can you share any sort of final wisdom on this? Or if you think that they shouldn't, that you tell them that as well. I would just start by saying that I really think that any change and coming together starts from the top, just like any other organization. And I would love if somehow Trump supporters or people on the left could encourage their leaders to show that compassion from the top, because imagine the change that we could have if Donald Trump tweeted out today to all of his supporters. Let's not be vile anymore to each other. Let's have more understanding. As a leader, I'm going to be more inclusive to all of the people of America. To me, it starts at the top. Is he going to do that? I have no idea. <laughs> But I think that everything starts from the top, and the power that he has in encouraging his supporters to have an understanding of where people are coming from the other side. David. Yeah, I would guess I would say you know I don't think、um, we can teach each other to be civil and give us sermons on civility. It's not going to do it. It's substance and how we act. And the nice thing about Donald Trump is he smashed our categories.、Uh, all the categories that we thought we were thinking in,、um, they're obsolete. They were great for the 20th century. They're not good for today. He's got an agenda which is about closing borders and closing trade. I just don't think it's going to work. I think if we want to rebuild communities, reef. Create jobs. We have the different set of agenda that smashes through all our current divisions and our current categories. For me, that agenda is Reaganism on macroeconomic policy, Sweden on welfare policy, and cuts across right and left. I think we have to have a dynamic economy that creates growth. That's the Reagan on economic policy. But people have to have that secure base. There have to be nurse-family partnerships. There has to be universal preschool. There has to be、uh, charter schools. There has to be、uh, college programs with wraparound programs for parents and communities. We need to help heal the, social, the crisis of social solidarity in this country, and help heal families. And government has to get a lot more involved in the way liberals like to rebuild communities. At the other hand, we have to have an economy that's free and open, the way conservatives used to like. And so, getting the substance right is how you smash through the partisan identities, because the substance is what ultimately shapes our polarization. David and Gretchen, thank you so much for an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. That was really, really interesting. <laughs>、um, hey, let's.、Um, Let's keep keep the conversation going.、Um, we're continuing to try and figure out whether we can add something here. So keep the conversation going on Facebook. Give us your thoughts from whatever part of the political spectrum you're on, and actually wherever in the world you're on. This is not just about America; it's about the world too.、Um, but we're not going to end today without music, because if We put music in every political conversation. The world would be completely different, <laughs> frankly. It just, it just damn works. Up in Harlem, this extraordinary woman, Vi Higginson, who's actually right here. I want to. That's a shot of Vi. She, she created this program that that brings teens together, teaches them the joy and the impact of gospel music. And、um, hundreds of teens have gone through this program. It's transformative for them. The music they made, as you already heard, is extraordinary. And、um, I can't think of a better way of ending this TED dialogue than welcoming Vi Higginson's Gospel Choir from Harlem. Thank you.
for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. America! America! TED Talks, go to TED.com. The best place to see stars is at home with Prime Video. Get everything included with Prime, like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. Rent or buy hits like Mean Girls, starring Renee Rapp. Or add-on channels like Max for the HBO original Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. You've never seen so many stars in one place. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. Prime membership not required to rent or buy. Prime membership required for add-on subscriptions. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details.